0: I have an iPhone that I use occasionally to uh, find out information, and I have this neat kind of thing on it. Those of you who have iPhones know what I'm talking about, where you can just ask Siri a question. So you'll say, hey, Siri, what about? And so I thought I would ask Siri a question. Hey, Siri, what is the meaning of life? Thought we'd go to something basic. And Siri's response was this. It's nothing Nietzsche couldn't teach you." Well, that's a bit of a pass off instead of giving you a good answer. Friedrich Nietzsche, of course, is a philosopher born in, what, 1844. Uh, he was indeed a, an individual who gave insight to many people as far as how to live their life, a very uh, existential, kind of an uh, existential uh, individual, and certainly not a biblical theologian. So I thought I'd ask her again to see if she'd come up with the same answer, and she didn't. Here's the second answer she gave me. Siri, what's the meaning of life? Try and be nice to people. Avoid eating fat. (laughs) Read a good book every now and then. Get some walking in. Try to live together in peace and harmony with people of all creeds and all nations. Well, some good things, but uh, I still don't think we're getting at the issue of life basically i'm pretty sure that you shouldn't find the answer to the great issues of life on your iphone there has got to be a better way right you and i often go to inferior sources in seeking to find vital information that's going to help us map out what this world is all about and what eternity is all about and what god is all about or sometimes we We get a weak answer, a feeble answer that we cling to because we simply just long to have something to live for. And all of that in the end does not satisfy. So I submit to you that what you need to do is take your questions to Christ and base your life on his answers. Take your questions to Christ and base your life on his answers. And that's really what we've been doing in Mark's gospel. If you have your scriptures turned to the gospel according to Mark chapter 12. And we've seen in our study that Jesus Christ is an amazingly good answerer of difficult questions. Nothing stumps him. And he gives answers that are profound and yet simple enough for us to understand. He's already handled a ton of challenging questions. Now to give us a little context, we're dealing with that last week in the life of Christ, basically beginning in chapter 11. Uh, It's the Passion Week, we call it. And on chapter 11, you know what happened on Sunday. Jesus rode into Jerusalem, and everyone was shouting, Hosanna. He rode in as a king on Sunday. On Friday, he's going to die as a priest. That's what we just celebrated with the Lord's table. He's going to die on the cross, not for uh, our sins, or not for his sins, but for our sins. But on Tuesday, and that's what we've been studying for the last few weeks, he's acting, teaching, instructing like a prophet. For Jesus is the perfect prophet, priest, and king and Hebrews tells us he is going to be that sacrifice but before he does he's trying to set the record straight and teach clearly the word of God and expose those who are not properly teaching the word of God so he's been asking or answering questions I should say occasionally responding with an answer and most of this this has been going on in the temple complex Uh, This picture, again, reminds us of that huge area, the court of the Gentiles, that surrounded the temple in the center on the Temple Mount. And then on the south side, the uh, beautiful porch called Solomon's Porch, which had this wonderful roof, large pillars uh, raising up to 30, 40 feet in some sections. And it was the place people would go, not only to be protected from weather, but also to find fellowship and instruction from the Word of God. Jesus has answered some tough questions. In chapter 12, there was the question about, do I pay taxes uh, to Caesar? A question of civil responsibility. And then there was the question in verse 18 of chapter 12 about eternity. If a woman dies who's been married to several husbands, Which one will be her husband in eternity? Of course, asked from people who didn't even believe there was an eternity. And Jesus answered that question in an amazing way. And then there's the question about priority. What is the greatest commandment? Verse 28. And Jesus answered that one. And now he's going to answer a question about identity. But this is a question that he initiates. Look at verse 34. So this is Mark 12, verse 34. When the lawyer had responded to Jesus, when Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God with all of your heart, the lawyer said that's a good answer, good response. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said, you are not far from the kingdom. And then I love this phrase, last part of verse 34. From then on, No one dared ask him any more questions. All of their questions were meant to trap him, except for the lawyer. I think that was an honest and sincere question. Maybe it started out bad ended good. I don't know. But no one would ask him any more questions because he was so adept and insightful at answering them. And usually, they ended up looking bad since they were trying to make him look bad. So verse 35 says Jesus initiates the question. The rabbis turn to ask. He's in the temple courts and he says, How is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? Now in this section of scripture, first of all notice that Jesus is going to give a witness to himself. That's really kind of where he is starting out. He's playing the role of the prophet. And as a prophet, he's going to be proclaiming truth. As a good teacher, he's going to be correcting bad teacher, uh, uh, the bad teaching uh, that the uh, scribes have put out there. So here is the witness coming from Christ, proclaiming what is true actually about himself. And notice he's also dealing with what is called in verse 35, the teachers of the law. Title actually comes from one word that uh, means professional writer. The Grammatus was a name for those scribes who were paid to write the law and copy the law and then also became experts of it and instructors of it. So these are the professional writers of the law. It's a title that is used about 20 times in the Gospel of according to Mark, and Jesus has been at odds with this guy, these guys from the get-go. In Mark chapter one, verse 22, when Jesus taught in the synagogue in Capernaum, it was there that the people said, wow, this guy, Jesus, teaches with authority, not like the scribes, the teachers of the law. And so from then on, these guys were trying to somehow upset him discredit him, and now during Passion Week, kill him, eliminate him. But Jesus asks a question that really has two parts. And the first part of the question is about the Messiah being the son of David. So this is all a witness about himself. He simply says, how is it that the teachers of the law, the scribes, say that the Christ is the son of David. Now that was commonly believed and indeed accurate and true. We read just a moment ago or responsively read from Isaiah chapter 11 that talked about David being that shoot of Jesse. He is coming from, uh, the, the Messiah is coming from David's line and Jesse being the father of David. Second Samuel chapter 7 says, When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up from your offspring to succeed you, one from your own body to establish the kingdom. And he is the one who will build up the house for my name, and I will establish his throne and kingdom forever. So to David he says, From your own line I will raise someone up. And so Messiah is the lion from the tribe of Judah. And he's born in David's city, Bethlehem. And even in the New Testament, in John chapter 7, when Jesus was interacting with the people, probably during or just prior to this Passion Week, they acknowledged the Messiah. The scriptures say the Messiah comes from David's line. So Jesus was establishing a point taught by the scribes and believed almost universally among the people of God. The Messiah is coming from David's family. David was Israel's best king, he's the model king, and Messiah will be David-like. By the way, when you get to the New Testament, genealogies are used both in Matthew and Luke to prove that Jesus is the son of David. He has to be, or he doesn't qualify to be the Messiah. So he just acknowledges this point. All agree. But notice the second part of the question. After establishing that Messiah is the son of David, verse 36, he says, but David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, that is, David's words are not his own. He is indeed the voice, but God is the breath. David is the one who will proclaim, but the inspiration is God. And when you read the book of Psalms, understand that those psalms from David are not from David. Oh, they explain his experience, and they come out of his mouth, and maybe even through his own personality, but they're the words of God. So David could say, the Spirit of the Lord was upon me. The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his words were on my tongue. So David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make or put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls the Messiah Lord, then how can he be his son? And this is something that the experts of the law never thought of. Here's the second part of the question. First part, Messiah is going to be the son of David. Second part, he is Lord of all. And yet this brings us into something of a conundrum. It's a puzzle, an enigma. How can this be? It doesn't make sense. The one who is coming is not only David's son, but he's David's Lord. And the greatest king of all, is calling his son Lord. The father is superior to the son. Why would he call him Lord? The greater one is called Lord. And if David calls his son Lord, then he's greater than David. But the Messiah is supposed to be the son of David because David's the greatest king of all. You can just see that the The teachers of the law would have been stymied at such a thought. It's one of those apparent contradictions that has no easy answer aside from divine insight. Aside from the fact that Jesus is both God and man. In essence, what you're saying, David, is that Messiah, who is going to be my son was actually before me because the prophecy of Psalm 110, which, by the way, is quoted uh, um, among the most of all Old Testament prophecies, was clearly Jehovah talking to the Messiah that predates David. How can he be before David and after David? That's the problem. How can he call him Lord when he's his son? Oh, I wish I could have been there. It's always fun to see the pompous put in their place. Oh, I have to confess. Not knowing what the outcome of the election was going to be, I have to confess, I had great joy Wednesday morning watching all the talking heads trying to explain how they were so wrong. Because we get a sense of joy out of watching the pompous be put into their place, which, by the way, happens to us as well, and it's not as joyous. They were stymied, they didn't know what to say, Jesus had them exactly where he wanted them, and so the answer Jesus knew, because Jesus is the answer. The answer is he has to be both God and he has to be man. It's not an issue so much of parentage. The comparison here is not so much that Jesus comes from David's line, although that's true. The comparison is that Jesus is greater than David when he calls him Lord. And he has to be divine to actually fulfill that wonderful prophecy. You see, Jesus is genetically in the sense of heredity, chromosomal, son of David. But he is also, in essence, and very nature, God. He's divine and eternal. And you have to understand that in Christian theology, there is so much that blows our minds that we cannot comprehend but we embrace by faith. Not because it's against reason. It's simply beyond reason. And here's one of those great examples. He had to exist before David to fulfill the verse. Yet he has to come after David to be his progeny. The answer is Christmas. That's the answer. Whose son is he Son of God, son of man. Son of Mary, son of God. Mary, that which is conceived in you is going to be your son, but he's conceived by the Holy Ghost and that which is born from your womb is indeed God in the flesh. Christmas to me is one of the most exciting times in the world. I love to think about God coming into the human race. And all because of his compassion toward you. All because of his wonderful compassion toward me. By the way, did you notice verse 36 is connected to a throne? Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool, till I place them beneath your feet. The Messiah will be a king. That's what Zechariah said. That's what Palm Sunday was all about. Behold, your king comes lowly, riding on a donkey, but this is your king, and he has a throne. And he will one day dominate the world for all kingdoms. All the kings of this world will bow down to the kingdom of Christ. He will be king of all kings and lord of all lords. You see, in that day, there was an inadequate view of the Messiah. They thought he was going to be a great military leader. They thought he would be a wonderful political advisor. But many did not see that he was God in the flesh until Jesus posed it in a question that no one could answer. But Jesus is the answer. And the crowd? Well, the Bible tells us that the crowd... (laughs) was delighted with his answer. The large crowd, literally, the original says, his large crowd, they were only there because of him. Yeah, there was a festival going on, but now everyone was attracted to him. He was a big attraction. Everyone was talking about him. It's hard to find a comparable in our world. Jesus came into town Every eye was glued upon him. Every soul wanted to be near him. The large crowd was delighted to see the pompous squirm. Jesus is a prophet, and this is what prophets do. They tell you the truth. By the way, all of us need a prophet. All of us need someone who will teach us God's truth The honest truth. And I submit to you, there is no better prophet than Jesus himself. So take your questions to him. He's the answer. Christmas is the answer. But in this section of scripture, look at verse 38. As he taught, and still thinking about the scribes who had poor theology, he issues a warning. Watch out for the scribes. They teach you what is right about the son of David. They don't know anything about the Lord of all. Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at banquets. Hmm. this section of scripture tells us what they like, what they do, and ultimately what they're going to get. Here are individuals who are bad teachers, and so a good prophet exposes bad teaching and bad teachers. Because there are charlatans out there who aren't in it for the glory of God. And unfortunately, They were in this camp. Remember a little while ago Jesus put down Gentile leaders when he said my uh, servants are the greatest in my kingdom will not be like Gentile leaders. They love to rule it over people. They love to be tyrants and dominate others and command people. They abuse their authority and those who were under their care by being tyrants. That's the Gentiles. What about the Jewish leaders? Well, some of them abused their authority by simply being frauds, taking what didn't belong to them. Now, notice the scripture tells us that they liked clothes. A very interesting word is used in verse 38. They like to walk around with flowing robes is the translation in the NIV. The Greek word is stole. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, it's where we get the English word stole. Taken right from the Greek. And it means some type of, well, I guess with ladies, it's not so much a, a long robe, but a long scarf or a wrap or something that they might wear. That's the stole. But you see, in, in Jewish culture, the religious leaders who are most noble and most respected had the longest robe. And according to Numbers 15, you had to have tassels in the bottom of your robes. And according to Matthew 23, these teachers enlarged the border of their robes. I'm sure their robes were scraping the ground. And they were white robes for the scribe. No one else wore white. That was highly impractical in such a culture, a, a dusty culture like Israel. But these guys wore white robes. They didn't do any work. The only time their robes got dirty is because they were so long they were kind of dragging along the ground. And they loved clothes. Ken Hughes says this was the original power suit. <laughs> Wearing the suit they depicted to everyone else that you were elite and you were in power. They enjoyed the trappings of authority. They loved to be noticed when they were in public. They liked titles. They would walk around, and they loved to be greeted, that is, greeted with respect, Matthew tells us, in the marketplaces. They loved titles like Rabbi, because that meant my great one. And they would use their titles. When they would walk by, you had to stand. And when people would stand or call them rabbi, that fed their vanity. And I'm sure they had vanity plates, you know, um, on their carts, rabbi number one. Because they love titles. Now sometimes we have to use titles, but to love titles? They love to be greeted in the marketplace as an important person. And not only that, they love the most important seats when they got to the synagogue, the VIP seats in the synagogue. This is rather interesting. In a synagogue, which often were not large places, in the very front, you would have this ark. It was a chest, and in the ark or chest were the scrolls, the holy scriptures, the writings of Moses. And then right next to that scroll were seats that backed up to the chest with the scrolls, Facing the congregation. And those were the most important seats in the house. Those were the VIP seats. And that's where the scribes wanted to sit. Much like we were sitting here this morning facing you. Maybe we need to change that. But they loved it. Because that was the best seat in the house. And no one could miss them. And when they went to banquets, they loved the chief seats, which normally were on the right or the left of the host. Invited to a banquet, glad to come. Where will I be seated, seated? Oh, somewhere out in the crowd? I don't think I'll show up. Because somewhat of my stature with my robe and my titles better be on your right or your left. And they loved the best seats in the synagogue and the best seats at banquets. They even loved being elevated above the aged and their own parents with clear disrespect to the Holy Scriptures. President Woodrow Wilson once described a man as the only person he ever knew who could strut while seated. You've seen people like that, haven't you? Just arrogance to the place where even when they're sitting down, they're strutting. That's the scribes. So that's what they like. Here's what they do. They devour widows' houses. Very interesting Greek word. It's a compound Greek word, and it literally means to down-eat or consume in almost a savage way, to go after your food like you haven't been fed. It's only used one other time in Mark. It's when the birds come and eat the seed that fell by the wayside and consumed it Totally. We're told the prodigal son consumed the living of his father, and we're warned in Galatians 5 don't bite and devour one another lest you consume each other. Same idea, same word. So these are the men who were consuming whatever they could get for their own benefit. They were proud and arrogant and also greedy. And the scripture says they were devouring widows' houses. What does that mean? Well, a widow is someone who's lost the protection of her husband. Now, it's not true today, but it was very much true in that day that women often, uh, women did not put themselves out and were not in positions of authority. And because of that, we're totally dependent on a husband's name and a husband's care. And if they lost their husband, the most vulnerable person in all of Israel was the widow. And these scribes could not be paid for their teaching, but they could live on the subsidies, the gifts of other people, and it was very meritorious to give to those who were teaching the law so they would go to the widow's houses and they would solicit funds and entice them. And just like the calls that the elderly get today to invest their money, in a scheme that can't miss. So the scribes would come into the widow's house and not leave until they had a sizable pledge or money in their hand. They would devour their property and make a prey of wealthy widows. They were easy financial targets. And so what Jesus is saying is there's a whole group of people in the realm of Religion, more specifically in the realm of Christendom, who are led by pride and led by arrogance and are concerned about greed and materialism, and they're deceptive, they're devious, because these guys, after they devour the widow's house, leave, but before they leave, they offer a lengthy prayer. In fact, some translations have it this way they devour the house, and then as a cover, Make a long prayer. They were notorious for praying long because the longer you pray, the more godly you are, the more you know. Have you ever listened to someone pray and you get the sense that they're trying to tell you everything they know theologically? Or the book that they just read the past week? Forgive me for that. (laughs) I'm sure it comes through. Some of you are nodding. (laughs) Yeah, that's what you do to pray a long time. I'll never forget one time a guy was praying in a D.L. Moody evangelistic meeting and he kept going on and on and on. And people were getting fidgety. And Moody finally got up and said, while well, our dear brother is finishing his prayer, let's turn to him number 513. <coughs> I just wish I had the guts to do that sometime. <laughs> and I try to keep my prayers short so that that will never happen to me. Long robes, long prayers. They weren't offering their prayers to God, they were offering their prayers just to themselves. And so, in the end, Jesus said, you've gotta make sure you know who I am, and you've gotta make sure you serve God with the right motives. Because that's what is so vitally important. To understand the character of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 22 puts it this way. What do you think about Christ? Whose son is he? What do you think about Christ? Is he son of David? No doubting that. Is he son of God? And if he is, call him Lord and follow him. And then when it comes to serving him, Make sure your service is not motivated by selfish ambition. Serve God from a pure heart. And he will bless you in a mighty way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask this morning as we think about the cross and as we think about the manger, As we think about your incarnation and we think about your crucifixion, we acknowledge with all of our hearts that you are God come in the flesh to die in our place so that we would be redeemed. You are our prophet, priest, and king. May we learn to take all of our questions to you and to embrace all of your answers. In Jesus' name, amen.